Hello everyone, this is Historian Splaining. I hope that all of my listeners and patrons are doing well. I'm presently up to 66 patrons, and as I've said before, if I get up to 75, I can commit to producing these podcasts on a regular, reliable basis. Under the current conditions, I can't print out whatever notes I've made, so... You know, there's diminishing return on investment as far as organizing my notes right now. So this particular installment may be a bit more disorganized, certainly more improvised than what I normally do when I try to usually have a very detailed plan and outline. So this particular lecture, if you even want to call it that, may be a little bit more in the style of a YouTube webcam guy in basement rant, but nonetheless I'll try to be clear in the points I want to make because this will probably be a very analytical and deconstructive discussion if I manage to do it right. A discussion of the 1619 project, which will be my newest myth of the month. It's been a while since I made a myth of the month, and this is one I realized a while ago I really should do. And hopefully the topic isn't entirely stale by now, uh, but it did receive another follow-up comment just last week in the New York Times, so I suppose it is still in the discourse, as they say. So what is the 1619 Project, and why would I do a myth of the month about it? So if you haven't heard or read about it, the 1619 Project is, loosely speaking, an essay series, a collection of essays by various columnists, commentators, critics, which were published together in the New York Times last August, August 2019. The project, loosely speaking, it's phrased various different ways in different places, but loosely speaking, it's a project commenting on slavery and the legacy of slavery in American history and arguing for the central importance of African American struggle in American history. And the sort of guiding spirit, the main organizer of this project, is a New York Times columnist named Nicole Hannah-Jones. So if it can be assigned to anyone, it is most of all her brainchild, although she is one of 12 different contributing authors. Why is it called the 1619 Project? Well, the publication was timed in order to mark the 400th anniversary of an event that happened sometime in mid or late August 1619. What is that event? Well, that is the time when, according to the records of officials in the colony of Virginia, a cargo, you could say, crudely speaking, of, quote, 20 and odd Negroes were unloaded and sold to the colony of Virginia, after which those 20-something people of African origin were subjected to some sort of condition of servitude or enslavement in the colony. So what is the big deal about that particular event that happened sometime in August 1619? 
Well, that is the first known recorded instance of African captives being sold into slavery, and I'm going to put that in scare quotes for the moment, into slavery in an English colony that was part of what later would become the United States. And for this reason, Nicole Hannah-Jones and her colleagues have picked this event and argued that it forms the real founding of America. So why would they say this? Well, neither Nicole Hannah-Jones nor the other mostly African-American authors who contributed to this project necessarily spell that out exactly. Why is it this particular moment should be seen as the founding of the country as opposed to the first creation of a colony or even the beginnings of Native American life or the American Revolution or the Civil War, which some historians have called the second founding of America? Why is this moment in 1619 when these so-called 20 and odd Negroes came to Virginia? Why is this the beginning of the country? Well, the most direct explanation of that we get is actually in a brief editor's note that sort of prefaces the whole project and which was written by some fellow named Jake Silverstein. But if you look at the sort of preface opening page of the project, you see the digits 1619 in large print. And then written in below it, almost like a caption, is a brief so-called editor's note, which gives us a sort of rudimentary framing for how we should understand the 1619 project and what it's trying to do. So let's see what this editor says. And I'll just read to you the first half or so of this editor's note. Quote, it is not a year that most Americans know as a notable date in our country's history. Those who do are at most a tiny fraction of those who can tell you that 1776 is the year of our nation's birth. What if, however, we were to tell you that this fact, which is taught in our schools and unanimously celebrated every 4th of July, is wrong, and that the country's true birth date, the moment that its defining contradictions first came into the world was in late August of 1619. Though the exact date has been lost to history, it has come to be observed on August 20th, that was when a ship arrived at Point Comfort in the British colony of Virginia, bearing a cargo of 20 to 30 enslaved Africans. Their arrival inaugurated a barbaric system of chattel slavery that would last for the next 250 years. This is sometimes referred to as the country's original sin, but it is more than that. It is the country's very origin. Out of slavery and the anti-black racism that it required grew nearly everything that has truly made America exceptional. Its economic might, its industrial power, its electoral system, diet and popular music, the inequalities of its public health and education, its astonishing penchant for violence, its income inequality, the example that it sets for the world as a land of freedom and equality, its slang, its legal system, and the endemic racial fears and hatreds that continue to plague it to this day. 
the seeds of all of that were planted long before our official birth date in 1776, when the men known as our founders formally declared independence from Britain. The goal of the 1619 Project, a major initiative from the New York Times that this issue of the magazine inaugurates, is to reframe American history by considering what it would mean to regard 1619 as our nation's birth year. Doing so requires us to place the consequences of slavery and contributions of black Americans at the very center of the story we tell ourselves about who we are as a country. Okay, there is a lot to unpack in there, as, as we would say in the current academic talk. There's a lot to unpack, but I would hope that that last sentence that I read ought to leap out to at least some of my listeners who have heard all of my long, annoying, tendentious myths of the month over the previous almost three years. The story we tell ourselves about who we are as a country. That phrase, I think, comes as close as you could hope to a definition of a national myth. What the 1619 Project is fundamentally trying to do, I think, is very clear. It is trying to confront and revise, or as they say, reframe our national myths. Who are we? What essentially defines us as belonging to this group or identity of American? And as part of that, where did we originate? What is our origin myth? And in a lot of ways, you know, America has very elaborate origin myths and has for a long time, just the same as all kinds of other social groups have origin myths. I've previously talked about the Blackfeet Indian nation and their myth about a creator deity offering different men uh, cups of water of different colors, which they then drank, causing them to speak different languages. And that's why you have different tribes, some of whom speak the same languages and some of which speak different languages. I've talked about the Exodus myth, right? My myth of the month number two is about the Exodus and how that serves as a core founding myth for the Jewish people, which has persisted now for 3,000 or more years. As Americans, we have our myths as well. And one of them, as Jake Silverstein very rightly points out, is the mythology of 1776 and the Declaration of Independence. And very intentionally, the creators of the 1619 Project want to shift that myth and instead pick out a different founding moment, 1619. If you look at Nicole Hannah Jones's Twitter profile, and she is very active and prolific on Twitter, as I may mention more later, I might spill a little Twitter tea if we have time later. She, if you look at her profile, she has a banner that simply has the date July 4th, 1776 crossed out and replaced under it August 1619, right? So a very clear, straightforward, visual message. We're trying to X out one origin date and the story that goes with it and replace it with 
another. Now, when I say this, a lot of people, maybe who haven't listened to me before, might think that I'm here to try to debunk the 1619 Project and denounce it or dismiss it as false or wrong. And that is not my point, right? I'm not saying that. I may debunk or correct a few small things, but that is not the point. To say that something is a myth is not therefore to say that it's false. You know, the the founding myth of America that centers on 1776 is not false. It's based on actual events. It is factual, but it's also an ideological choice to focus on that moment and to cast it in a certain light and to try to somehow connect it to who we are and what we are today, more than two centuries later. A myth is not necessarily false. A myth is a story that we tell, a narrative that tries to make sense of and explain the world we live in today. And when the 1619 Project tries to create an alternative national mythology, it's using a lot of accurate facts and important, and I would say relevant facts, that people ought to know. But it is also framed by ideological choices, many of which are fundamentally politically motivated, as I will get to. In this sense, you could say what I'm doing here, it's not debunking, it's deconstructing, right? There's going to be a lot of deconstruction here. And I'm using deconstruct in the loose sense of examining and trying to uncover and question the basic assumptions underlying a story or framing a story, to use Silverstein's own terms. So I will get to that. Now, all of that being said, I'm not, again, I'm not here to trash the 1619 Project. I think that what they're doing is very valuable. I think it's a good thing to read. I wish it was not paywalled. I wish I could tell you all to just go go read it right now. But you have to either have a New York Times subscription or somehow <laughs> get the file from a friend, which I did. Thank you, Michael J. Simpson, for giving me a hard copy. Or you may be able to ask Nicole Hannah-Jones for a copy for example, for prison education programs, uh, Hannah Jones will send you uh, files so that you can use it as part of your instruction. So if you are interested or you want it for an educational use, you can ask her and you may get, you may get copies of it. So what is the 1619 Project then doing? If we take this as our basic statement or framing, if you turn after this introductory editor statement, you get a sort of artistically disorganized table of contents with various authors and basic summaries of what their essays are about listed. And they cover a whole range of topics examining how certain, you could say, defining features of American life have their roots either in slavery or in the Jim Crow era. And Several of these essays have stood out and received a lot of praise and a lot of reaction. One is about how American capitalism and the sort of drive to extract maximum productivity out of workers has its roots in the highly mechanized and mathematically managed slave plantations of the 19th century. There is a very eloquent and evocative essay by the critic Wesley Morris about American music and how it has its roots in Afro-American music and even in slavery. 
There is an essay about how urban sprawl and congestion have their roots in the Jim Crow era and the effort to lay out separate zones of cities and metropolitan areas and divide them with large highways which obviously is a very inefficient way of laying out cities. So that's just a little sampling of how the the project tries to to link various topics that might seem to be disparate and connect them back to this common root, this common core of slavery and racism. And if you look back at this editor's note, he more specifically, Silverstein more specifically says that the landing of these 29 Negroes in Virginia began, in his words, the defining contradictions of America. So he's putting forward this notion that America is not built around a set of high ideals or principles like you know, the Declaration of Independence and life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness or the Constitution. Rather, American life revolves around a set of contradictions. There is a sort of tension at the heart of America, and that is what makes America, America. So it was not America yet, presumably, he seems to be implying, it was not America yet in 1618, when what you had was European planters, merchants, and indentured servants doing labor. But it was America a year later, once there were African captives, or so-called Negro captives, in Virginia. That is when it became America. And that is very important because he's trying to show that America is still, in a sense, ideologically defined. He's not questioning that. He does believe that this is an ideological project or phenomenon that makes America, America. It's just an ideological contradiction, not a creed or a way of life. And it's interesting that he and Nicole Hannah-Jones emphasize that they're trying to extirpate the myth of America beginning with 1776, and they don't mention 1620. You know, I would have thought before reading the project that that would be the main point of this essay series would be to say America didn't begin with the Pilgrims and Plymouth and the first Thanksgiving and this sort of idealized New England Puritan work ethic picture of America, but rather it was a year earlier, you know, and it is remarkable and surprises many people when you point out that actually there were African slaves here in the colonies a year before there were Pilgrims. Uh, but they don't even really mention that. And I think that that is a mark of how thinking about American history has evolved, how the debate has evolved, and how much this 1619 project is trying to, again, engage with ideology, with doctrines, liberal, humanist, declaration of independence, conception of America, that was probably, was quite popular and dominant in the post-war era in the mid-20th century, but has come into question and come under attack in the years since then. And in a way, you could see the 1619 Project as a kind of culmination of this effort to displace and shift the core of what it means to be American. Now, to look at that table of contents again, 
I can't help but note when I see a table of contents, I can't help but count how many items there are. And that table of contents, even though it comes after the little editor's note, it does include that as the first object listed in the table of contents. And if you count them up, there are 12. And call me crazy, but I don't think that that's a total accident. 12 essays running from the beginning, from the, the first landing of African slaves in America up until modern day and the current inequality crisis and mass incarceration. The number 12 is a number with a lot of associations and overtones. The 12 Olympian gods, the 12 apostles, the 12 signs of the zodiac, 12 months in the year. It's a number that's associated with completeness, balance, and with the cycles of time. Even the Chinese zodiac, which goes year by year, is a cycle of 12. And I think that these 12 essays collected together in this project are intended to give a sense of completeness, a cycle of time of 400 years, uh, turning back, in a sense, to the beginning, to the origin. In this way, they present a kind of rudimentary picture of an alternative American history, a history that intentionally centers on the African-American experience. And if you read the first full essay, the first one in the series is by Nicole Hannah-Jones. And that essay in itself forms a little kind of cycle to frame all the rest of them. And it begins with Nicole Hannah-Jones remarking that her father, and let me make sure I get this right, I don't want to mis misquote her, it begins with Hannah Jones remarking that her father, quote, always flew an American flag in our front yard. Now, this is a curious place to begin, you might think, if the origin, or the, the beginning point of the story is supposed to be 1619. And yet here she is starting off by talking about her personal experience with her family and the intense display of patriotism that she remembers from her own upbringing. And she goes on to discuss how for her, as a young African-American woman growing up in the 20th century, she found this bizarre. Why would an African-American man who knows about the history of lynching and segregation and continuing racism, why would he still show this devotion to America and its symbols? And her essay goes on to explore this question and to try to reconcile what seems to be attention or a contradiction. And she basically concludes that real American patriotism is true devotion, sincere devotion to the ideals of freedom and equality that America professes to the world. And that African Americans have the truest, purest loyalty to these high ideals and hence are the most American Americans. You know, rather like that recent book, The Most Human Human, she argues that African Americans exemplify American life and identity more than anybody else. Her final paragraph reads, quote, We were told once, by virtue of our bondage, that we could never be American. But it was by virtue of our bondage that we became the most American of all. So... As she says, she's trying to follow through on this idea that African Americans 
have striven for and fought for in the most true, unwavering way for the realization of these supposed American ideals, and that that actually makes them more American than others. I, as a historian, have no position on who is more or less American. I do not support or oppose this statement, but I want to point it out and emphasize it because I think it shows how this so-called reframing of mythology, of American founding mythology, is actually pretty explicitly uh, aimed at reframing American identity and redrawing the boundaries and hierarchies of who counts as American. Some problems with this claim or statement might come to mind. Let's not worry about those just yet. But let me first comment a little more on what the rest of these essays do. So as I said, there are 12 of them in total. If you start from that beginning editor's note through to the end, there are 12 of them. And they explore and embrace a whole variety of topics. They, it is not just about slavery. It, is, it runs right on up into the 20th century. But what are some themes and patterns that I think run through the whole project? Well, there are several, and I'll point out a couple. One is that the project often points to instances of African-American success and prosperity that for one reason or another were cut short or destroyed. There are mentions of very important and revealing incidents such as the so-called Tulsa race riot in which certain white residents of Tulsa, including police, attacked, basically inflicted a pogrom on the African-American neighborhood of Tulsa and destroyed what had been really a quite prosperous and vibrant part of the city and center of black life. There are also stories and anecdotes about authors' relatives and forebears who had successful businesses, who were then physically attacked, uh, forced out of town. This has happened many times, and I think that these stories are very valuable for a lot of reasons. One is in showing that the wealth gap and African-American poverty that is still very common today is not just the natural outcome of slavery. That is not the whole explanation. It is also the result of organized, intentional action by racists to keep African Americans in poverty, to maintain them in positions of debt and subservience, and to eliminate possible successful African American competitors in business or politics. The last essay, very revealingly, is a digest of interviews with law students at Howard University, which is probably the most prestigious traditionally African-American university in the country. So it brings us up to the present. And I think it's very revealing how this is sort of the chosen end point. You might even say by implication, the fulfillment of the story that this essay series is telling. Why would it end up here when law students at Howard University are, of course, only a very tiny fraction, I would say a pretty unrepresentative fraction of the Afro-American population? 
Well, clearly, when you think about it, law students represent a new rising generation, not only of their community, but of a new professional, highly educated middle class. The profession of the law has always the profession of the law has always been a marker of educated upper middle class, genteel, respectable status. And in a way, ending with these law students is a way of implying or confirming the notion that the realization of success in America is the attainment of this kind of upper middle class white collar status. It echoes the ideas, you could say, in some sense of Booker T. Washington, but also in a different way of, of Du Bois and the, the hope for a talented 10th to lead the African-American community. It gives you a picture of rising from slavery through the violence and repression of Jim Crow, the lost opportunities, the injustices, but then emerging, you could say, into the light of education and professional status and power. So I'm not going to say, of course, that that story is wrong or that that story shouldn't be told, but I do want to point out how when you look at the shape of the essays overall. It does echo that very old, I would say, very old ideology of advancement, of what Washington and his supporters would call race uplift. So that is my sort of rough and dirty summary of how this project looks and of what I took from it as I read through it. Many people will point out other things that struck them as important. That's fine. It's the essay series is intended to provoke discussion and debate, and that is certainly what it has done. But I'm going to try to not get bogged down in details, except by pulling out certain details that I think are revealing and tell us something about what this essay series is doing and how it is constructing, as I said, an ideological narrative and myth from history. So say we go back to the the beginning of the beginning here, back to that initial editor's statement, laying out roughly what the essay series is trying to do and how it's trying to reframe American history. There was one word that I tripped on right away as I was reading this opening. So in his introductory editor's note, Silverstein explains what is so significant about this date. And he says, Quote, that was when a ship arrived at Point Comfort in the British colony of Virginia, end quote. So if you are an anal retentive colonial historian like I pretend to be, you should notice that the word British is wrong. Virginia was not a British colony in 1619. It was an English colony. What's the difference? Well, before the Acts of Union... England and Scotland were still two separate kingdoms with separate governments, separate parliaments, and so on. They just happened to have the same king, James I. The overseas colonies were all possessions and creations of England, or at least they were claimed as possessions of England. They had nothing to do with Scotland. Scotland was still left out of this whole system. So all of the early colonies that we think of, Virginia, the Carolinas, the New England colonies, all of them started as English colonies. They were not British yet. Okay, 
this is sort of nitpicking over terminology, right? And this is the kind of thing that many historians have done. I've done it. Michael J. Simpson, my friend, has done it. I'll mention him later. Other historians, Gordon Wood and so on, have picked out little factual errors like this, which can appear quite petty. But it's important to note that they're pretty numerous. There are quite a number of these small slips that a careful historian should have noticed and corrected before this project was published. The question then is, why do they matter? What's the big deal if they happen to say British instead of English? Well, I think that these errors, like this little one that I just pointed out about the word British, are somewhat revealing. They show some of the misconceptions that I think fed into how this project was constructed. And they tend to be presentist or anachronistic. And okay, so what are these weird academic seminary terms that I'm throwing out here? Well, this is a big issue in history. Presentism, taking the assumptions based on our present experience and projecting them back into the past where they don't apply. Britain didn't exist as a nation or a political entity until the Acts of Union in 1707. There was no British, there was no Britain. All it was, there was an island called Great Britain, but it was just a landmass. These colonists and the merchants who came and sold captives to them were English. They were coming from an older, smaller world that didn't have these sorts of ideas, assumptions, laws, institutions that we associate with the later British Empire and with the American Revolution. When the Americans rebelled in 1775, they were rebelling against the British Parliament. And by calling the colony of Virginia British before that term existed or meant anything, is to, in a sense, project our ideas and associations from later years, especially from the American Revolutionary period, back more than 100 years earlier when they don't apply. So this doesn't necessarily make a huge difference to the story of 1619, except in that we have to remember that in the 1600s, nobody anticipated where this was going. Nobody knew that there was going to be a nation called America or that there was going to be a United States. And so to take any event, whether it's 1607 or 1619 or 1620, taking any of those events or incidents and trying to cast them as the beginning of America or the United States is like trying to conjure a phantom. And even beyond that, I would say the whole project, the whole effort to try to pinpoint a single moment when America came into being is simply an ideological project. It's not historical. And as historians would say in their sort of dweeby language, it's anachronistic. It's ignoring time. It's like taking a a Victorian era hooped skirt and putting it into a painting of King Arthur's court in the Middle Ages. It's out of place. It's, It's trying to take things that didn't exist yet and put them into the wrong era. And likewise, in the same way, another word in this same introductory paragraph also leapt out at me, the word slavery. He says that this event in 1619, this arrival, quote, inaugurated a barbaric system of chattel slavery, end quote. 
There are a number of issues with this statement. First, in what sense did this event in 1619 inaugurate anything? It might seem, well, of course it was a beginning point because it was the first time that African captives were sold into a colony that would later become the United States. Well, firstly, that is not true. There were other colonies in North America in what would later become the United States that already existed before Virginia and that already had African laborers in them. For instance, the Spanish colonies in New Mexico and Florida, as well as all the Spanish colonies of the, their entire American empire, Mexico, the Caribbean islands, South America. All of these colonies from almost the very beginning had African captives or servants in them, some of whom became free and became quite successful. You know, there's an instance of an African man who became an encomendero, who was granted power over a tract of land and the indigenous people in it as his reward for serving in the Spanish conquest of South America. So African people had been part of the colonization of the Americas since long before 1619. Now you might say, okay, well, but that doesn't really matter because we're talking about the English colonies. Well, this also was not the first time that African captives were brought to English colonies and sold into servitude. This had already happened previously in Bermuda and also Providence Island, another English colony founded mainly by English Puritans in the Caribbean. So African captives had already been uh, stolen, pirated, uh, kidnapped from Portuguese and Dutch slave traders before and brought to English colonies. And the arrival of these so-called 20-odd Negroes in Virginia was simply a continuation of that pattern that had already been happening. And in fact, uh, historians have been able to trace back the documentation to show that this particular group came from southwestern Africa, probably the area of Angola. They were the, the ship on which they were being held captive was then attacked and raided by English, who then took these captives and sold them off in Virginia in return for supplies like food and water. And this was the same basic event that had been going on already for years with English privateers of one sort or another taking captives from Dutch or Portuguese slave traders and selling them off in Bermuda and the Caribbean. Now you still could say, well, yeah, but those don't count because those islands didn't later become part of the United States in the way that Virginia did. Well, this, of course, is another instance, as I would say, of anachronism. At the time, there was no political or legal difference between Bermuda and Virginia. They were both just English overseas colonies, and they were operating in largely the same way. They were growing tobacco, using indentured servants, and sometimes African captives. There was no way to draw a line in 1619 and say there's something special and different about Virginia, or Virginia is somehow part of America, in a way that Bermuda or Providence Island were not. So what we're doing when we pick out this event in 1619 is we're 
reinforcing the existing boundaries and trajectory of American history. Right? We are continuing to reinforce this idea that something special and distinctive happened in these English colonies in the mainland of North America that makes them somehow more free. Right? What, what is so free about Virginia? Why was there a contradiction in selling African captives in Virginia? Saying that there was somehow a defining contradiction that arose at this moment in 1619 is just re-adopting and reinforcing this idea that the English colonies were somehow specially free and that this then made them specially suited or destined to give birth to the United States, which is an exceptionally free country. Silverstein even uses this term, everything that has made America exceptional. So in this way, the 1619 Project is still clinging to this kind of core American exceptionalism. America is special. America is defined by these ideals of freedom. And that you can trace these founding principles or ideals of freedom back to the beginnings of the English colonies on mainland North America. Even though at the time, no one would have seen Virginia as special or distinct in this way. It was just another English colony, another colony of another upstart northern European power, just like the Netherlands and France and Sweden and so on. Okay, so in all of these ways, I'm, I'm trying to say that the 1619 Project is not overthrowing or taking apart founding American myths. It's just, in a sense, moving them or shifting them a bit in time and giving them a different focus, a different framing. And you can see that in this choice of 1619 as this special distinct moment and not something earlier involving Spanish or French colonies and not something involving other English colonies. Okay, so... Nonetheless, you still could say, all right, well, like, like Nicole Hannah-Jones does on Twitter, you could say, well, we're concerned with the United States, and we're concerned with the colonies that became the U.S., so we're just going to put all that other stuff aside. We're going to put aside the Spanish Empire. We're going to put aside Bermuda. We're focusing on what we know later became the 13 colonies, and she continues to use this phrase repeatedly, the 13 colonies, as sort of the beginning, the foundation of America. Well... Even then, there are problems and questions with asserting that 1619 inaugurated a system of chattel slavery. Let's look again at this phrase that the officials in Virginia used when they talked about this shipment of captives that they, in some sense, purchased in 1619. They call them 20 and odd Negroes. Negro is a Portuguese, originally Portuguese word meaning black, and it was used as a kind of catch-all term for people of African origin, including when those people were bought and sold as captives. They did not refer to them as slaves. And in fact, it's extremely rare. Right up until about 1640, there are hardly any instances of any people of African origin or otherwise in the American colonies being referred to as slaves. They tended to be called Negroes or Negro servants. 
And servant was another very broad catch-all term for any person who, for whatever reason, is reduced to a condition of servitude serving someone else. And that might be a master, you know, an individual person who owns you or your labor. Or it could be an institution. It could be the government of a colony. It could be the Dutch West India Company, which owned Negro servants in New Amsterdam. So Negro servants were people who were basically forced to labor for somebody else. They were not the only servants. If you were to look at Virginia, or for that matter, New Amsterdam, which came a few years later, the vast bulk of the laboring people doing the work of farming, building, fighting and defending colonies, the vast majority of them were servants of European origin. And they were sometimes more specifically called indentured servants, people who were considered to be somehow indebted and owing labor to someone else, maybe because they paid for their passage to America, or simply as a kind of punishment. Criminals, prostitutes, so-called vagrants, landless people who wandered around the countryside looking for work, trying to survive. They were often arrested, swept up into workhouses, jailhouses, and then transported to the colonies and assigned indentures, basically told for the generous favor that we have done for you by shipping you across the ocean into a dangerous, disease-ridden colony, you now owe some term of labor, which might be five years, seven years, ten years, which could be arbitrarily extended, and during which time you would have little or no rights. No right to leave, no right to payment, no right to marry without your master's permission. In other words, if you were a European servant or laborer in a colony like Virginia, your condition was pretty similar to what we would call slavery. It wasn't necessarily the same, but one of the few differences was that it was understood that at some point you would have the chance to become free. And if you were lucky, that might be after only five years. More often, it was longer, closer to seven to ten years. A lot of these servants, especially in the early 1600s, died long before they could become free. This was a backbreaking labor regime. It was an unhealthy environment. You could die of malaria. You could die of simply malnutrition, vitamin deficiency. It was really a horrific set of conditions in these colonies, and it wasn't until about the 1660s that the diet and living conditions of servants improved enough that they had a good chance of living longer and filling out their terms of labor and becoming free persons. So this regime of labor was already in place by 1619 when these 20 and odd Negroes were brought to Virginia. How were these people treated? What sort of legal status, or social status for that matter, were they assigned when they showed up? Well, we really don't know. And certain authors like Michael Guasco, who wrote the book Slaves and Englishmen, have tried to investigate exactly what was the complex of rules and laws defining the standing of these Negro servants when they came to America. And it's very unclear. And Guasco says in a very funny passage, he says, so many historians wish 
that they could have been standing there at the dock at Point Comfort in order to survey the colonists and the Africans, for that matter, too, as they came off onto shore and asked, what is the legal standing of these people? What are they slaves? Uh, will they become free? What about their children? What are the limits on how they can be treated? Do they have any rights? We simply do not know. It's very unclear. There seem to be instances in the 1620s, 30s, 40s, where people of African descent could have a great deal of status and rights and privileges in colonial society. Many of them did become free, and some of them owned land. Some of them owned other Negro servants. There's a famous case where the free African man Anthony Johnson sued in court successfully for the return of another African slave whom he owned and who had run away and taken shelter with a neighbor. So there is no clear line here saying that these 20-odd Negroes, when they arrived, nor thousands who came after them, were necessarily considered to be slaves and that they were necessarily treated that differently from European servants. It's not until the 1650s that we have cases where African servants were clearly assigned a different status under law. For instance, there was a case where three servants ran away, one of whom was African and the other two were European. I believe one, if I remember right, one was Dutch and one was Scottish. And when they were caught, they were returned to their masters, and the two European servants had their terms of labor extended for several more years as punishment. But the African man, John Punch, was sentenced to servitude for life. So this is one of the first incidents that the idea arises that Africans can be subjected to servitude for life and never become free. And little by little, this pattern seems to have become more common, bit by bit, year by year, until it was kind of the norm by about 1670 or so. It was common to just assume that Negro servants are enslaved for life. And only in the 1660s was the rule instituted in law of partus sequitur ventrum, meaning the womb follows the stomach. And the implication of that is that when an enslaved woman has children, her children are also slaves or are servants, as they might be phrased at the time. So the notion of chattel slavery, the idea that a person is just a piece of property, that they are completely owned by their masters, that they are slaves for life, and that their children are also slaves, that the status passes down from mother to child, that didn't really take shape until the 1660s and 70s. So it was very slow and gradual, and it wasn't really, you can't say it was in place until at least 50 years after 1619. And again, we have to be careful of thinking anachronistic that just because some African servants were sold into the Virginia colony in 1619, that that means that that's where chattel slavery began. It had to be developed gradually. And likewise, the racism that was used to justify and rationalize enslavement of Africans, the notion that that Negroes belong to a separate race, a race that is somehow inferior to Europeans, or whites, in quotation marks, that took even longer. That sort of racial thinking doesn't come into the records until the 1670s and 80s, 
and becomes predominant later in the 17 and even the 1800s. The notion that you can scientifically demonstrate superiority and inferiority of races, that didn't come up until after 1800. So it's, this is a very gradual process, and we cannot project this all the way back to 1619 when it just didn't exist yet. Now, some scholars have argued that this is not quite true. You know, you've seen this come up in the debate that, no, actually, there was a well-developed and well-defined notion of slavery already in place by 1619. And that is true. The catch is that there's no evidence that it was applied to Negroes. It was applied to Europeans. If we look at English common law, English common law had ruled out the idea of chattel slavery within England. No English subject could be a chattel slave, meaning a piece of property bought and sold, under English common law in the late Middle Ages and the 15 and 1600s. It just wasn't allowed. That's part of why it was blocked from spreading into Britain itself. It only took place in the colonies. However, there were laws many laws on the books, including in local legal systems in England, saying that a person could be sentenced to slavery as punishment for a crime. And there are a few instances that, for instance, Michael Guasco has found and points out in his book Slaves and Englishmen, where someone might commit theft or physical assault, and they could then be sentenced to a year or five years as a slave maybe a slave of the local council or a slave of a particular master, so as a kind of punishment in place of imprisonment. And there are even a few instances where some English people were sentenced to galley slavery, although that didn't happen very much because England never had a big fleet of galleys. Who did have large fleets of galley ships, meaning seagoing ships that were powered by human rowers? That was the North African states, the sort of quasi-independent city-states on the Mediterranean that broke away from the Ottoman Empire, like Tripoli and Tunis. These states did have galley fleets, and they were fed and supplied with human captives, mainly by pirates on the Mediterranean Sea. And when Europeans, including the English, spoke about slavery in the 15 and 1600s, they had a fairly developed and vivid notion of what that meant, and it was based primarily on the experience and the reports of galley slavery in the Mediterranean. So if we back up to the 15 and early 1600s, there were thousands of Europeans, including English people, who were captured at sea by so-called Barbary pirates, sort of privateers acting in cooperation with the Barbary states, these city-states of North Africa. And they were usually then sold into captivity and slavery on the mainland of North Africa or at sea on the galleys. And the reports and the records of galley slavery in the 15 and 1600s are absolutely horrifying, harrowing really beyond belief, as disturbing as anything that you can read from plantation slavery. People were chained to oars, forced to row most hours of the day, almost never sleeping, fed barely enough to stay alive, and often going long stretches with no water, delirious, unable to sleep, 
And on many ships, if there was no replenishment of the water supply, all of the slaves on board would simply die of thirst. And this happened many times. It was as horrific a fate as you could possibly imagine. And really the only hope of escaping and surviving galley slavery was if your home nation somehow intervened and ransomed you back, which could be very hard to do. It might involve funds and diplomatic maneuvering that would take a long time and you would simply die before this deal could be completed. And those who did amazingly survive and get back home had these absolutely harrowing stories to tell and had injuries and traumas that probably most of them could never uh, recover from. So this is the idea of slavery that people largely had in mind, and they didn't think of it as something that we Europeans do to Africans. They thought of it more as something that North Africans or infidels do to us Christians. And it took a long time, several generations, for the thinking to shift and for people to reimagine slavery as something that we Europeans or later whites can do to this other group of people, Negroes. And this was a shift that took place in the economic and political environment of the 1600s. And it was, it was very gradual. So in this way, can we say that 1619 inaugurated a system of chattel slavery? Well, really, if we look at the historical facts, that's not true. It came later, and it was gradual and haphazard and improvised. And I would argue that the same is true of American history and America more broadly. It's really impossible to pinpoint some single moment of origin where this thing, America, suddenly came into existence that hadn't been there before. It's something people had to gradually construct, and it took, in this case, centuries, really. It's ironic, I think, that Nicole Hannah-Jones and these other authors cross out the year 1776 and replace it with something earlier, when in fact we can say that the notion of America as a nation with, an, with a national identity didn't come until a pretty long while after 1776. The Declaration of Independence did not claim to form or establish a national group. All the Declaration of Independence actually aimed to do was argue why the 13 colonies assembled in Congress had the rightful authority to declare their independence from Britain. But it did not refer to America as a nation. When people used the word country in the 1700s, they almost always were referring to their particular state. That's where people put most of their loyalty and identity. When Thomas Jefferson refers to my country in Notes on the State of Virginia, he's talking about Virginia, not about the United States. And it was only after the revolution that small numbers of intellectuals, such as the Connecticut Wits, started to argue that Americans should think of the whole of the United States as their nation, and they should, in their words, assume a national character. But even then, it took a long time to take hold. And the historian John Murren, in his very influential article, A Roof Without Walls, actually argues that even into the 1800s, the Constitution was still just a kind of political institutional roof placed over a country that was 
fragmented and where most people identified primarily with their home state and did not think of themselves as part of a national identity. And hence, it was it was a roof propped up without walls supporting it. And as some would argue, it was really only the experience of the Civil War and Reconstruction that actually finally forged an American national identity and a, a feeling of belonging to a single national unit. People before the Civil War usually said the United States are such and such, right? I think Ken Burns even mentions this in his documentary series about the Civil War. So in this way, I think the 1619 Project is is an instance of trying to push back ideas, notions, abstract entities further back in time, far before they existed, whether that is the notion of slavery or the notion of race or the notion of an American nation. And this sort of new national mythology is on some level an effort to further bolster and put a, a deeper, an even deeper foundation under these national myths. Now, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how was the theater, <laughs> right? There are also ways in which this new national mythology draws on intellectual debates that have been going on in American history since at least the 1960s. In some ways, the, the 1619 Project is very traditional and, and really old-fashioned, right? It's, it's interested in what is the essential American identity, the basic American creed, and how do we define our story? These are the sort of things that a lot of very respected conventional American historians like Daniel Boorstin and Perry Miller were interested in in the 1940s and 50s. You know, and Perry Miller, in a way, was sort of the great light of, of American national scholarship looking to the roots of America in the Puritans and New England and the, er the errand into the wilderness, right? And so in a lot of ways, the, the 1619 Project is actually in this same vein. It's just trying to recenter this foundation of American identity in the South, in slavery, and in the African-American experience instead of in the North and in Puritanism. Now, this sort of notion of American history was challenged very much in, especially in the 1960s, with new, new left historians trying to unearth and emphasize the injustices and the internal conflicts that have been inherent in American society. The struggles over slavery and freedom, the struggles over women, the struggles with Native Americans, and the dispossession and ethnic cleansing of the indigenous people. And in a way, you could see the 60s as a sort of period of conflict and confusion of various challenges and attacks on Whig history of America. The idea, as, as Eric Foner would say it, the idea that America was perfect from the beginning and has been getting better ever since. You know, the, the notion that we are founded on high ideals and on liberty uh, and religious freedom. Colonists came here for religious freedom and then created an exceptionally free society. So with these challenges and attacks in the 1960s, respected mainstream scholars, especially at the old Ivy League institutions, had to respond in one way or another. 
And one common response was to say that, well, sure, there are these failings and flaws in the American project, like slavery and mistreatment of Native Americans. But these were just aberrations. They were just exceptions. The general rule was one of improvement and of progress and of expanding freedom. In this way, the the American story could still be a classic Whig story, a story of continual improvement and of progress towards ultimate liberty. And you could say, in a way, Gordon Wood sort of repeats and extends this American story, like in his book, Radicalism of the American Revolution, where he argues that the American Revolution was a radical break with the past. And sure, it didn't end slavery. Slavery continued, but... It also created the environment of freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, in which the abolitionist movement could begin and could succeed, leading ultimately to the breakdown of slavery. So that's a fair enough point as far as it goes, but it still, you could say, doesn't address the fundamental charge of hypocrisy, the idea that The framers who are so celebrated, the founders of America, the founding fathers that we refer to in this very Freudian charged phrase as if they're somehow our fathers. The the charge that they were hypocrites and that they, they couldn't have really meant what they were saying about liberty and natural rights if they also owned slaves or condoned slavery. And indeed, as many of us have pointed out over and over again, the great author of Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness, Thomas Jefferson, was at the same time a slaveholder and a defender of slavery in in many instances. And so there was still an uneasiness, you could say, a sort of unresolved tension. How do we still account for this great American ideal of liberty and freedom and reconcile it with the enduring importance of slavery. And many scholars and lay observers very rightfully said, look, slavery is not just an aberration. It's not just a footnote. And as the 1619 Project very rightly points out, it was very important. It was a pillar, part of the foundation of American civilization. How do you reconcile that with these supposed ideals expressed in places like the Declaration of Independence? The scholar who really tackled this problem in the most impactful and, I would say, shrewd and insightful way was Edmund Morgan. So Morgan was a Harvard historian who, for most of his early career, was a fairly, you could say, conventional, traditional early Americanist. One of his prominent books was called Visible Saints, and it focused on the Puritans of New England. Again, you know, like Perry Miller and these other historians who see the sort of deep roots of the American mindset in Puritan New England. In 1972, he tried to begin to tackle what he saw as this problem of the contradiction of America, of professing beliefs about freedom, of creating an exceptionally free society, which at the same time gives a prominent role to slavery. And he, in 1972, he presented a paper to the OAH, the Organization of American Historians, and it was called Slavery and Freedom, the American Paradox. And this 
paper, which he presented to OAH, sort of hit the American historical scene like a ton of bricks. Because here was this leading light, you could say, of traditional American historiography, openly arguing that slavery cannot be relegated as a kind of side note of American life that eventually was resolved. Rather, he argues that it was integral to how Americans first conceived of the country. He focuses particularly on Jefferson as an illustration in arguing that, in fact, slavery and freedom were two sides of the same coin. Although the two appear to be intention superficially, in fact, they complemented and bolstered one another. And he argues that it is no coincidence that Jefferson was a slave owner at the same time that he professed these ideals of freedom and liberty. Why? Because if you have a slave labor force doing the sort of lowest level, lowest status work, like field work or domestic work, preparing food, serving dinner to Thomas Jefferson and his family, that makes it easier then to say that the rest of the population who are not slaves should enjoy a great deal of rights and dignities and freedoms. The two complement each other. It is possible to conceive of a society of free men who inter interact with each other with a certain degree of respect and deference if you can relegate the worst roles, the lowest status, the most dangerous roles in society to a slave caste. And that, in Morgan's argument, is how chattel slavery and racial slavery made it possible for free men of European descent to talk about liberty and freedom in this very ambitious and lofty way. So this paper caused quite a stir, and Morgan kept his promise by following it up with a much more detailed and thoroughly researched book examining the origins of both slavery and freedom in the colonial era, specifically in early colonial Virginia. And so he came out with this book called uh, American Slavery, American Freedom, which is arguably, and I think many historians would agree with me, is the most impactful and influential book of American history, certainly of colonial American history, from the entire 20th century. And Morgan examines the evolution of colonial Virginia in excruciating detail and points out many of the same things that I already mentioned. How there was not a clear legally defined status for servants or for specifically Negro servants through much of the 1600s that European planters and masters were perfectly happy to brutalize and exploit their servants of all colors and national origins, and that this situation started to lead to problems by the mid-1600s, problems that then exploded in Bacon's Rebellion of 1675, which nearly destroyed, in his view, the colony of Virginia entirely. So what were these problems? Well, if you're shipping in thousands and thousands of servants from Europe and also some from Africa, and you're putting them to work, 
you can extract a certain amount of labor from them and produce mainly tobacco and make profit off of it. And this is what the land and labor barons of early colonial Virginia were trying to do, was just force people to work, get a certain amount of tobacco, and sell it and get rich. However, a big problem was that these servants kept dying and you had to keep shipping in more of them. So how do you solve this problem? Well, one thing you can do is improve their living conditions by doing things like growing more fruits and vegetables. And as Morgan points out, in about the 1660s, there was a trend of planting orchards and hence giving your servants better nutrition so that they can survive in this environment. And so by 1670 or so, you have a lot of servants who are actually living longer and they might complete their terms of service. And what do you do once they complete a term of service after 7, 10, 12 years? Well, you set them loose. You say, okay, now go fend for yourself. And that was something that these ex-servants could do if they could obtain a piece of land. Maybe not a very big one, maybe just a few acres. Some land where they could then grow their own food and their own cash crops and survive and maybe even make some money and become prosperous. So this is what many ex-servants started to do. They started to set out to the frontier areas where there was unclaimed land and set up for themselves as small farmers or even get their own servants. Well, that could work out fine until they're encroaching upon outlying lands that were still claimed by the indigenous nations who were still numerous and strong around the Chesapeake region, even though they had been decimated by epidemics. So what's the problem here? Well, eventually, when you have a lot of these free people then going out and trying to get land of their own, they're going to provoke skirmishes or even wars with the Native American nations. They're going to destroy the balance of power, the diplomatic and trade status quo that the leaders of the colony, like the governor and his officials, have had to negotiate. They're going to create wars and chaos, and this started happening more and more in the 1670s. And the governor and other officials tried to restrict, then, the movement of free people, try to keep them contained, under control, try to stop them from setting out and claiming lands of their own and provoking fights with the indigenous people. So you now have a growing class and political tension within the colony of Virginia, which breaks out when this gentleman from England comes to Virginia, who happens to be a cousin of the governor, but who somehow seems to personally resent the governor, antagonizes him, and eventually gathers up a makeshift militia of discontented ex-servants, including both European and Africans, and goes on the warpath, starts attacking the colony, burns down most of the original capital at Jamestown, and at one point even surrounds the home of the governor and threatens to kill him. So this rebellion really shocks the colony and England, the mother country, and, and England has to send fighters and money to try to maintain this colony against this existential threat. And they're able to just barely put down the rebellion. They have to chase this army around the sort of outlying swampy areas of Virginia. And the rebellion sends a message that 
the colony cannot simply keep importing endless thousands of servants who are then going to become free and who are then going to try to claim rights and privileges and land as free persons. So what is the solution? Well, the solution is import more servants who don't necessarily have to be made free, who can be kept as a permanent labor force with no chance of freedom. That is Africans. Africans do not have the kind of legal or political status that Europeans do. They can be kept as permanent slaves, as well as their children and descendants. And you can set up a clear, strict class or racial, if you want to call it that, hierarchy between Africans and Europeans. Europeans have certain basic rights. Africans do not. And hence, you can make Europeans free and give them certain standing under the law that puts them at a higher status. There's a divide and conquer element. Keep the Europeans at a higher status level than Africans, and then they can be kept loyal and supportive of the colony. They can have a chance to own their own slaves. They can have rights and prerogatives that the slaves do not. And that can make up for not being able to give them land. So the turn to African slavery really accelerates and becomes the norm after Bacon's Rebellion because it is convenient. It is a way of getting out of this unmanageable political situation in the 1600s. So hence, in this way, Edmund Morgan argues the high degree of status and freedom that is given to Europeans is contingent upon, depends upon, the existence of this permanent slave caste of African descent. And in his view, that's why it is possible then in the 1700s for people like Jefferson to preach about liberty and freedom, while at the same time keeping African slavery for granted, taking it for granted and keeping it as a permanent undergirding of society. Now, in this way, I would say the 1619 Project, whether the authors consciously realized it or not, are really taking Edmund Morgan's argument and extending it a bit further and saying that this paradox, this contradiction, which is the word that they use, is what makes America America. And hence, it was not resolved in the Civil War and Reconstruction as other disciples of Edmund Morgan might say. It was not resolved even with the civil rights movement, as perhaps Eric Foner might say, although, you know, I won't put words in his mouth. In a sense, it's saying that the paradox is permanent. It can never really end. Since it defines America, it has to be there as long as there is an America. And the African-American population is the sort of special bearer of American identity because they, by their mere existence, embody this paradox, right? And I think that's what Nicole Hannah-Jones is communicating by talking about her father always flying an American flag and always replacing it if it becomes tattered. African-Americans as a people embody America as such. Okay, so in these ways, I think we should see the 1619 Project as a kind of revised and updated 
version of American Whig history, right? A national history that assumes that trajectory of American life is towards greater and greater freedom. It just puts African Americans, instead of at the periphery, it puts them at the center of that story and casts them as sort of the heroes continually advancing the cause of freedom. That's fair enough as far as it goes, but we have to notice how, again, this still assumes the basic underpinnings of Whig history, that there is such a thing as a continuing through line, that the natural movement or progression is towards greater freedom, and that somehow the United States is this coherent entity with a coherent ideological definition or flavor that makes America the embodiment, the vehicle for the continual progress of history. This is a sort of set of assumptions that can you can trace right back to the first history of the nation, back to Mercy Otis Warren and her Whig history of the American Revolution. Okay, well, that's a certain myth of history. That's a certain narrative of history. It serves certain purposes. It's not all wrong. It's not false. But I want to point out a couple things that that history might leave out, uh, that it does leave out, that it even, I would say, actively excludes, and that also call it into question. So a couple of those things that I want to note are, for one thing, Native Americans. Where'd they go? Another thing, what about Africa? What about where these early African Americans, these including these so-called 20 and odd Negroes, what about where they came from? What about the world, the knowledge, the beliefs, the history that they brought with them? What happened to that? Well, those questions might seem a little bit far afield, but they actually came up, as I said before, on Twitter. So let's just for a moment, I should try not to get too deeply into this, but let's talk about how these questions came up in a sort of odd incidental interaction that happened a few months ago. So Nicole Hannah-Jones, the sort of main mastermind of this project, is very active on Twitter, and she's been engaged in debates that have arisen over the 1619 Project. For one thing, shortly after it was published, several very prominent, you could say, establishment historians came forward to criticize it, said it was tendentious, politically motivated, and so on. Well, you know, those objections, from my point of view, don't really matter. A lot of them amount to just, well, I didn't like it because it didn't make me feel good, or it wasn't positive enough about America. You know, I'd rather have a more rosy picture. Uh, And, you know, sure, it's tendentious, but guess what? It's commentary being published in a magazine. It's trying to make a point. They're pretty straightforward about what their point is. So we can make all kinds of criticisms and objections, like I've already done here to some degree. But, you know, there's no need to rehash all of that. Other historians, for example, David Waldstriker, have come forward in defense of the 1619 Project, Some of the debate has been over a sort of passing reference 
where one of the authors says that, well, the American Revolution was largely an effort to protect slavery in the colonies, which the colonists feared was under attack from Britain. I do not agree with that argument. I don't think the evidence for it is strong. But, you know, it's kind of just a passing reference. It's not really a central point of the project. And it's something that, you know, historians have gotten into this back and forth over because maybe, you know, it touches a certain nerve emotionally, whether you, you know, how you feel about the revolution and the founders. But putting all of that aside, Nicole Hannah-Jones has been keeping up with and in any way she can engaging in this conversation. And it happens that a few months ago, my friend Michael J. Simpson, who you've heard before on the podcast, who's a you know colonial historian in the PhD program at Brown, he spoke positively about the 1619 Project, but also pointed out what he thought of as a mistake and a problem, which is where at one point an essay refers to Crispus Attucks, who was an American colonist who was killed in the Boston Massacre by British regulars in 1770. And hence, he's often been celebrated both then and since as a kind of American martyr, or maybe the first American killed in the revolution, although it wasn't a war yet. And the 1619 Project refers to him as an Afro-American born as a slave. And in this way, again, he's a perfect, you could say a perfect set piece for what the 1619 Project is doing, reinforcing the sense of American identity, American mission, but putting African Americans at the center. Well, my friend Michael J. Simpson pointed out, actually, Crispus Attucks, from the records we have, appears to have been a Native American. And his name, Attucks, is a Narragansett Indian word meaning deer. When Michael J. Simpson pointed this out, Nicole Hannah-Jones actually responded. And these tweets may or may not still be visible on Twitter. I delete my tweets, so mine will be gone. But I have screenshots in case anyone wants receipts. She responded firstly with a question. She said, referring to Crispus Attucks, she said, was he enslaved because he was an African or because he was an Indian? Now, she later soon after deleted this tweet, so we should not hold it against her. This is not a position that she stuck to, but it was her initial reaction, and I think it's just illustrative of the ideological problem I'm talking about. So she initially says, well, was he enslaved because he was an Indian or an African? And I jumped in and pointed out, well, there were many Indian slaves in the 18th century. This was not uncommon. Slaves were not all of African origin. And that's a topic that a friend of mine, actually, Carolyn Arena, has been working on, the trade in Indian slaves, both in the Caribbean and the North American colonies. I don't know if she knew this or not, but initially it seems as if Hannah Jones assumed that only Africans were slaves. And she then shifted and said, well, okay, there was Indian slavery, but it was abolished by the end of the revolution. And my friend Michael J. Simpson said, what's your basis for that? <laughs> where, where, when and where did any state abolish the enslavement of Indians? As far as he or I knows, it was never abolished. And probably even in 1865, many slaves were of Indian descent, not just African. Just as many of them were of mixed descent 
African, European, and Indian. Okay, so Nicole Hannah-Jones very understandably said, well, that's a tiny detail. Why are you nitpicking at that? You know, and that's fair enough. And this is where I said, well, to me it seems to reveal a pattern in the 1619 Project where you make all of these grand assertions about American history and identity and the origins of America lying with African Americans while writing out Native Americans who were already here for hundreds or thousands of years before 1619. What happened to them? Hannah Jones's response to this is sort of twofold. She makes two different responses, which in my view are kind of contradictory. One is to say the 1619 project is just about African slavery and its legacy. It is not about Native Americans. So I asked, quote, what do you think of the thousands of years of Native American life before 1619? Did they just disappear? And Nicole Hannah-Jones says, of course not. 1619 is not the history of North America, nor is it arguing about the founding of North America. It is about the 13 colonies that would go on to become the United States of America. Native Americans were sovereign nations with their own cultures, governance, laws, and customs that pre-existed this new nation founded by British colonists. Enslaved black people, on the other hand, had to shed these things and become a new people born on these lands. So on the one hand, she's arguing that the scope of the 1619 Project is narrow. It's not about American identity as a whole. It's not about the definition of America. It's just about African slavery and its legacies. But I pointed out, well, your essay is titled The Idea of America. And the whole project seems to be saying it's reframing what American history is and even what it means to be American. So aren't you trying to sort of have your cake and eat it too? and say, this is about America as a whole and what it means to be American. But when you point out what's then being excluded, then you say, well, it's not really about America as a whole. So that's one of her responses. The other one is to, in a sense, double down and insist, yes, African Americans are specially American in a way that Native Americans aren't. So she goes on to say, quote, by most American, I mean a people created on these lands within the confines of the new nation of America. Native people predate the United States, British colonialism, and the establishment of the colonies from which the nation would be born. Okay, well, <laughs> so here she is saying, no, there is a real difference in distinction, and African Americans count as American in a way that Native Americans don't, because they were created on, as she says, created on these lands within the confines of the new nation of America. Well, let's remember, for one thing, in 1619, there was no new nation of America. There was only an English colony on the Chesapeake. And it was only according to the English that that colony was even English. No other nation in Europe recognized it as a legitimate English territory, nor did Native Americans recognize it as English territory. 
So by back projecting and saying, well, Virginia in 1619 was somehow part of the American nation, you're saying that an American nation already existed as soon as Europeans landed in America, and that Virginia was part of this America, this American nation, as she says, which really, you know, this is a harsh word, but really that's a very imperialist assumption. You're basically saying that the European colonists legitimately owned and controlled Virginia over and against the Native American nations who saw this as Powhatan territory or Penacook or whatever. So again, I think this shows how, in her own words, Nicole Hannah-Jones is viewing all of these events as part of a kind of imperial American history. It was all America right from the beginning. And Native Americans don't count. They're foreign. As she says, they were their own nations with their own laws and customs and history. And that is not part of American history. Well, I would ask, why not? Why is that not American history? Why does American history, if 1619 in Virginia is part of American history, even though no American nation existed yet and wouldn't for more than a century, why, why is not 1519? Why is not 1319? Why not, why not start from the Mississippian civilization? Why is pre-Columbian America not American history? And of course she has her reason, she says, of why that doesn't count. But I would just say, look, that reason is a reason, but it's an arbitrary reason. It's an ideologically chosen and politically chosen reason why. Why certain people count as more American than others. And it's a reason that is rooted in the assumption that there is a legitimate, essential American identity and an American nationhood that we can then use as the marker and the boundary of what counts as American and what does not. Now, there's something else. There's another element here, too, in the background that this narrative leaves out that I think is important. And that is Africa. What about everything, what about the whole history, customs, beliefs, knowledge that these captive African people brought with them? Well, Nicole Hannah-Jones seems to imply that that all disappeared or was erased when Africans came over. And she says at one point, Native Americans were sovereign nations with their own cultures, governance, laws, and customs that pre-existed the new nation founded by British colonists. And of course, they were not British, they were English. Enslaved black people, on the other hand, had to shed these things and become a new people born on these lands. Did Africans shed their customs, their history, so to speak, when they came to America? That is a notion that was pretty widespread and widely accepted among very traditional American national scholars in most of the 20th century. Again, if you were to talk to someone like Perry Miller, they would tend to say, oh, there was a mass scrambling, they forgot their languages, they forgot their art, their religion, and they just had to be assimilated into this new American colonial world. And hence, there is no link back to Africa. There's, there's this sort of cultural erasure notion. Well, that's been challenged, I would say, pretty effectively by a lot of scholars from about the 1970s onward. There are certain books like uh, Raboteau's book, The Invisible Institution, about slave religion, 
where he traces important African-American religious practices like the ring shout and the Lonesome Valley and funeral and burial goods that clearly carry over from West Africa. There is the entire Gullah language, a language that is still spoken on the coasts of Georgia and South Carolina, which is mainly derived from West African languages creolized and combined with English. There is also the Black Rice thesis. You know, Judith Carney, an anthropologist, put forward an argument with various forms of evidence demonstrating that the enslaved Africans in South Carolina Low Country instituted wet rice cultivation because they knew it from Africa or certain among them knew it from the practice of wet rice cultivation in West Africa. Now, there's been back and forth debate about this thesis of, of so-called black rice, uh, but I think today most early Americanist scholars would agree that it does hold water. The European colonists did not know how to create a rice paddy. The African slaves did, and that's how that practice came to America. So there's an accumulation, really, of different forms of evidence in art, in language, in religious practices, in family forms, that shows that a great deal did carry over. And one of the striking things I learned as a grad student when I read certain books like Slave Country about the slave-owning planters' colonization of Alabama and Mississippi, even in the 19th century, even after 1800, slave owners would very often refer to specific slaves according to their African origins. They would say, this man is a Yoruba man, or this woman is Igbo. They would know the ethnic groups and the language groups that African people came from, that they still knew and used. When I wrote for Museum of the City of New York about enslaved African people in New Amsterdam, I focused on a woman who was called Maria Van Angola. Why? Because she was from Angola, and there were others who were known for being from Sao Tome or other countries in Africa. And they brought, again, not only certain customs or habits, they brought that identity with them into America. And some of them survived. West African day names, names like Kojo and Cuba, that have continued to be given to African Americans, even down to today, derive from West African names. There are letters, journals, even published documents from America in the 19th century that record the continuing practice of Islam. A certain fraction of Africans brought to America were Muslims, especially from uh, the Senegal area, and many of them continued to practice and pass down Islamic customs, prayers, the Islamic Sabbath, on down into the 19th century. So I could go on and on with examples like this of how heritages from Africa were carried on in one way or another in America. The 1619 Project makes no mention of this. They don't have to. It's not their obligation, just like they don't have to talk about Native Americans. But what we have to see is that that's an ideological and political choice. A lot of what, what the 1619 Project is trying to persuade us is that African Americans are the most essentially American of, every, of anybody. And if that's your point, if your point is African Americans should be seen as the most American, then you don't want to talk about Africa. <laughs> you don't want to talk about their roots outside America. It makes them seem less American. 
especially in comparison to indigenous people who have been American for thousands of years, right? So that gets written out and erased. It simply doesn't appear in the 1619 Project. In On Twitter, Nicole Hannah-Jones specifically denies that anything carried over, right? They lost all of that in her words and had to start over and be recreated as Americans. It just doesn't come up at all in the 1619 Project, except, I think, in one little reference at the very end, which struck me and intrigued me, an indirect possible implication. So the last section, as I said, of the 1619 Project is a collection and discussion of interviews with law students at Howard University. And the last of these interviews is with a young woman named Yasiman Montgomery, 24 years old. And at the end of her interview, she's discussing the importance of her connection to her ancestors and her heritage. She says, quote, it's important to start the conversation before slavery. We didn't just pop up in America. We were part of a culture. And this really leapt out at me because I thought, what's she saying? Before slavery? The whole point of the 1619 Project is that everything began with slavery. The defining contradictions of America, African-American life, it all started when slavery started. And here is this woman saying, well, we have to remember there was something before slavery. There was a culture. And yet she never specifically says the word Africa. If she did in her interview, it, it would make sense because that seems to be what she's implicitly referring to here. It's not included. It's left out. We are intentionally, ideologically cutting history off at 1619. It's as if it was simply ex nihilo. There was nothing. <laughs> nothing existed before 1619. Not in America, not in Europe, not in Africa. It's all erased. And of course, whenever you tell a story, you have to arbitrarily choose a beginning. So there's nothing wrong or offensive about that. We just have to recognize that there are reasons. There are evident manifest reasons why why this particular story is being told with these particular parameters this 400 year cycle so what is the point what is this all about well clearly as they say they're trying to reframe american history and i would say that they're trying to reframe it from a particular point of view i wouldn't say that it's the african-american point of view as such Rather, it's the point of view of a particular new and developing social group, a social group that is exemplified both by the authors of these essays and also by the law students that they interview at the end. And that is the highly educated modern African-American middle class who have little by little worked their way into the major cultural institutions of the United States, to use a cliche phrase. So more and more African-Americans have been able to go to college, to go in some instances to elite colleges, like Harvard, where Edmund Morgan and Perry Miller used to teach. And more and more of them have been able to get a foothold and get a voice in major venues like the New York Times. And they represent a certain point of view where, understandably enough, they see their own lives and careers, their own experiences as a kind of fulfillment 
of the African-American story, the attainment of at least a kind of cultural success in intellectual life, even if that is not really matched by political power, right? We have increasingly in America, we have this radical split between cultural institutions and politics, right? Where, <laughs> where totally different social groups hold power in the two realms, the two spheres, and they both fear and resent one another. But I think the story the 1619 Project is telling, I'm not going to say, of course, it's false. What it is, it's a myth. It might, it might have some truth in it and some falsehood in it. But it's a story that is constructed in order to account for where America is today and to account for how this new rising class of highly educated African-American intellectuals and writers view America uh, through their particular window on the world. So if you can, I, I encourage you to read it and see what you think. If you've already read it, I'd be interested in what your reactions and thoughts are. So please comment, go to my page on SoundCloud, email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com. And if you can, please sign up as a patron at any level, even if it's just a dollar, and you'll have access to all of my lectures and discussions, including all of the rest of the Myths of the Month. Thank you. Thank you.